Good morning, Trinity Divinity College. Uh, I hope that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good this week, but if not yet, your time is coming. My name is Jonathan Scarpuzzi, and I'm a two-time graduate of the ABC with the Andrew and Everett in theology. I'm currently journeying with churches in Atlantic Canada as a church consultant and exoneration specialist, while working on my PhD with IBTS Amsterdam, and I recently began my second year there. I'm glad to see all of you again. It's good to see all your smiling faces and, uh, and be with you. The verse we're looking at together this morning is short and simple and helps us ponder several aspects of our life, witness, and theology. Many of us have heard this verse in passing or even in sermons, but I want to look at it from a different angle this morning. The verse is found in Psalm 145. Um, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in love. It may come as a surprise to some of us that this verse is actually found in the Old Testament. Normally, the Old Testament seems to characterize God as a more rapid and angrier type God, but here we see something different. Recently, the group of young adults that I regularly meet with finished up the scriptural series on the story of Jonah. We found ourselves challenged in, in ways that we didn't anticipate. A little background here. Uh, scholars believe that the story of Jonah originated during one of the Jewish exiles, and it introduces us to this Jewish prophet named Jonah. And throughout the story is evident that Jonah knew God's character, but he didn't like it. In one of Jonah's rants, he accuses God of being too loving, too compassionate, too painstakingly slow to become angry. Jonah knew his theology, but he didn't agree with how much patience and love God had towards people. Well, not all people, just the people that Jonah wasn't comfortable being around, just the people who had lifestyles that he didn't like, just the people who had different ethnic roots than he did. Jonah thought he knew how to be God better than God. So when God tells Jonah to bring a message of repentance to a place that was populated with people he was disgusted by, to a people who lived a lifestyle that he thought was evil, to people he thought were ethnically and racially inferior, he decided that God's directions were negotiable and he didn't have to obey. Why? Because deep down inside, he knew that God would give chance after chance after chance for them to repent and be saved. Jonah knew God's character, but he didn't like it. In his desperate attempt to ditch God's calling to go, Jonah personally finances a boat and crew to take him in the opposite direction, telling, trying to flee from the presence of God. But as an avid churchgoer like Jonah, he knew the writings of the Psalm 39 that says, There is nowhere I can go from your presence, Lord. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are also there. But Jonah still tried to escape from God's ever-present presence. It makes no logical sense. So when God invites the ocean and the winds and the rains to pummel Jonah's new nautical investment and divinely interrupt Jonah's cruise, God bank, Jonah banks on God's mercy for him and goes below deck to sleep, leaving the unbelievers to battle the storm. 
And Jonah was right about God and his character, for when the crew eventually listens to Jonah and launch him overboard to still the storm, God is merciful and sends a big fish to swallow and save him. Now, I'm not fluent in fish psychology and their gag reflexes, but if I were the fish and I had to listen to Jonah's self, selfish, insincere repentance prayers for three days, I think I would have probably vomited him up too. And as you can guess, after puking up on, being puked up on the beach, Jonah grudgingly brings the message of repentance to the people that he wasn't comfortable being around, to the people that lived different kinds of lifestyles, to the people he thought were racially and ethnically inferior to him. And guess what? Jonah was right. They received the message and repented, which in Jonah's eyes was very wrong. So he began to throw a tantrum, sulking and pouting about God being merciful, compassionate, and loving. Jonah sat in the hot sun and threw a little pity party for himself and waited in hopes that God would destroy the city. After the plant that provides shelter from the hot sun was eaten by a worm, he prayed and begged God to either destroy the city or just kill him. Jonah said over and over, I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Jonah knew God's character, but he hated it. So where does this story leave us today? And I think we all can agree with the Old Testament scholars who argue that Jonah is not somebody we should try to follow. If anything, we should try to be the opposite. Because by all stretches of, of the word, Jonah was a hypocrite. He wanted to ration and control God's grace and mercy through his lens of hate and self-righteousness. We have many different words we could use to describe Jonah's behavior and ideology like nationalistic, ethnocentric, and possibly even racist. And going in this direction will lead us into some very disturbing spaces. But this is the reality of Jonah's dark heart as evidenced by him sitting on a hill praying for God to murder a full city of men, women, children, and animals. But thankfully, this story is not about Jonah. It's about God. It's about a God who is mind-blowingly compassionate, merciful, and loving. And God proves his character by being merciful and loving and slow to anger, even with those who, in our opinion, don't deserve God's mercy, like what, the Ninevites? No, more like Jonah. Did you see how that kind of happened there? I think it's easy for us to stoke the fire that makes our blood boil when we think of Jonah's dark and decrepit heart. And before we recognize it, we have already crept into a conclusion that of all the different characters in the story, Jonah was at the top of the list of people who deserve to be destroyed. It's ironic, though, because Jonah had the same attitudes and feelings about the people that God told him to go to. This puts us in a little bit of hot water here because we're going through this story judging Jonah's stupidity and hate without realizing that we had concluded that due to his rebellious actions and downright detestable worldview, his destruction by God would inherently be justified. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove reflects on this and on this turn of events and suggests that Jonah bears a resemblance to the church. And I don't need to go through the history books to show you all the times when the church has failed to walk in obedience to the expectations of God, especially when it comes to our Arab, African, Latin, Asian, and indigenous family. Our church seems to, the church even tries to negotiate out of loving and caring for certain types of people by weaponizing scripture and creating arguments that may sound theologically acceptable. Even today, 
the church is sometimes known more for what issues we are against or what we don't approve of instead of promoting a God who is compassionate, mercy, and loving towards all. And may I remind you that it was Jesus who came into our broken and fallen world, not with judgment, but as the Old Testament God in human form as an embodiment of compassion, mercy, grace, and love. Paul even writes to the church in Colossae that Jesus dwells and it's the present tense in the fullness, not just the fraction, but in his entirety of the triune God in bodily form. Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not think he was better than us because he is God. But he set aside those things that would normally be exalted in this world to become a servant among those that even the world despised. Jesus came to show us that we had it backwards. God fights alongside us, not against us. God comes to save and restore, not destroy. God comes as Jesus to save the Jonas, the rebellious, those with detestable worldviews, the self-righteous, and those who we think that may not deserve God's compassion, mercy, and love, like us. So there has to be more to following Jesus than just having the right theology and believing the right things. As it is evident in the story of Jonah. Believing the right things or having the proper theology is inadequate unless it transforms the way we live and interact with those that we, that who might not be our cup of tea. Now, I can diverge into a self-deprecating story about my failures and successful rendition of Jonah-like behavior, but I think oftentimes it's better to speak of those who are closer to the target of embodied Christ-likeness. So I want to tell you a story about John. I met John in my early days of pastoring in a rural town outside Kansas City. It was a smaller town with around 10,000 people. And the joke was that the, that number also included the cows and the goats and the chickens. And I'd brought, been brought to this small town on a one-year contract to help a declining co congregation revitalize their church and ministries. They had quite a list of things they needed to get done and address during this one year. Um, and one of them was actually starting a youth ministry for the first time in their church, which of course meant that I needed volunteers to help lead the ministry, not only during my time there, but to carry it on after my one-year contract was up. I just finished a passionate plea to the congregation one Sunday mornings about needing help for starting the youth ministry. I remember the glazed-eyed looks from the congregants as even some of the attenders packed up their things and headed for the exits before I finished. I, could keep, I couldn't keep my composure long after I left the sanctuary and I went into my office and I let out a deep sigh. Yeah, this was going to be way harder than I thought it was, I said to myself. There just doesn't seem to be any passion here to reach the next generation. And as, as I began to pack up my things, I heard a soft knock on my door. Pastor, came a gentle voice from the door as it slowly opened. My name is John. I don't know if I can be much help to you with the youth, but I have time. John was 73 years old when I met him that day, and he would not only become one of my most inspirational and dependable youth leaders during that year, but one of my closest friends. John had grown up in Minnesota and moved to Missouri with his first wife and two young children. A few months after relocating, his wife was killed in a horrific drunk driver accident, and he was left to care for his two young children alone. A couple years after this, after his wife's death, John opened a donut shop where he was known for his free cup of coffee with the purchase of a donut. 
It was one of the most popular spots in town. Several months after that, he remarried and had three more children. About six years into the marriage, without any warning, his wife packed her things and left, only leaving a note saying that she won't be back. This left John with five children to raise on his own. He did the best he could until a town decision was made to expand the highway, which went right through his donut shop. John's hard work and livelihood was demolished in a matter of seconds. It was about four years later that John remarried again to a woman who had four children of her own. And John continued to try different business opportunities, but 10 years before his retirement, he had a file for bankruptcy. It just seemed that time after time, John kept getting dealt a bad hand and could never catch a break. And if he turned into this grouchy old man of the town, honestly, no one would blame him. But he was the opposite. You see, John was the first person at the prison to pick up the teen, now adult, whose decision to drive drunk killed his first wife. Not only was he there to pick him up, but he gave him a job at his donut shop until he could get back on his feet. And then after John's donut shop was demolished, he hired the same man to work on his farm and paid him really well. John was also the first person at the town hall after his donut shop was demolished to admit that there was no hard feelings toward the town council. And he even brought them a dozen of freshly baked donuts. John continued to reach out to his second wife during the divorce. And even though their property and assets were split 50-50, he went the extra mile and bought her a car so she could drive to see the kids. And he even covered her rent for a year until she was able to find a stable job. Now, John didn't tell me any of this, but I ran into the man on the farm who told me that while driving drunk, he killed John's first wife. And I ran into several former city council members who now were attending the church who told me that it was their decision to demolish John's shop because it saved several hundred dollars. I even heard that John's second wife came back many years later and attended the church for a while until she passed from cancer. And it was John who led her memorial service. After hearing all these stories, I, I began to take a keen interest in this guy named John, and I took him up on his offer to have coffee every weekday morning at his home, as my drive to the church office took me right past his farmhouse. On a warm spring day, towards the end of my one-year contract, I was sitting at John's kitchen table early in the morning, and I could smell the delicious aroma of Dunkin' Donuts coffee brewing as the warm Missouri morning air whisked through the open windows. As John brought over our two mugs of piping hot coffee, I began telling him all the stories that I've heard about his life and, and how he's acted and what his reputation is in the community. Finally, I just had to ask, why? Why are you not bitter and grouchy? He didn't answer right away, although I, I caught a small smile spread across his face. But he opened a drawer next to the table and took out a stack of three by five note cards that were held together at the corner by a rusty old ring. He gently slid it across the table and said, this is what I go through every morning. I wrote down all the teachings in the Bible that have been made by Jesus. And I've made it a habit to go through them every morning. Sometimes I only go through one, but sometimes more. But Jesus's teachings are ingrained in my mind for the rest of the day. As I began to look through the worn coffee stain cards, I noticed that John had written in some notes in the margins of each of Jesus's teachings. For some of the teachings, John even added an extra note card for all of his notes. 
Sometimes, John said, we get to think that all we need to do is just love Jesus. But that's only the start of it. The real important part is living out his teachings. And that's when you truly learn to love Jesus. And that's the real test if we truly love him. Like that one, he said, pointing at the card I was looking at. I chuckled at the note that John wrote in the corner. Following Jesus means taking your shirt off. This note was referencing a teaching in the Gospel of Luke 6. I like the paraphrase here, John said, as it really cuts to the heart of Jesus' teaching. Go ahead, read it out loud. So I did. When someone curses you, bless that person in return. When others mistreat and harass you, accept it as your mission to pray for them. To those who despise you, continue to serve them and minister to them. If someone takes away your coat, take your shirt and give it to them as well. It took me a while to understand this, John said. This lesson isn't about them, but it's about me. It's about conditioning my mind and my heart to let God extend his compassion, mercy, and love towards those I may not necessarily like or understand at the moment. And me being excited that they get a chance to experience God's compassion, grace, and love through me, just like I've experienced that through Jesus. This teaching today moves beyond the basics. It takes acceptance and love to the next level as a non-negotiable for us. It makes us look our, ourselves in the mirror and ask, am I really living like Jesus asked me to live? Am I really willing to put myself in spaces and places where people will take from me? And in turn, am I willing to offer up more? Or am I like those that Jesus criticized who only love those who love them in return? Am I extending compassion toward those that see the world differently than me? Or do I believe that I'm the only one who's right? Am I open to see different perspectives from those who disagree with me? Do I take time to listen well to the pain and struggles of others? Am I being gracious to those that choose to live in ways that I think are wrong? Or am I quick to judge or condemn another person's lifestyle or life choices before remembering that they are beloved and made in the image of God? Am I painstakingly slow to become angry with those who make comments or remarks that make my blood boil? Or am I known for having a quick and damaging tongue with those who easily draw me into angry outbursts? Am I quick to dismiss the Jonas in my life who tout their hatred and narrow-minded perspectives? Am I abounding in love towards those who would rejoice if I were to fail? Am I honestly praying for those that have ill will towards me to experience the compassion, grace, mercy, and love of God? Even if it's that's through me giving them my shirt. Let's pray. Jesus, if we were honest with ourselves, your expectations for us are more challenging than we admit. We don't love others like you've loved us. And we ask for your grace and forgiveness for the times that we've tried to negotiate or justify our lack of care for your creation. We can't even come close to following your teachings without your spirit. So today we ask that your spirit give us the mind, heart, eyes, and emotions, and ears of Christ so that we are primed to mirror Christ-like actions and, and reactions in the many difficult situations that we face today. We ask this in your gracious, compassionate, merciful, and loving name.
Amen.